Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis and we're on chapter 10. Chapter 10. The Journey's End. Having been open to the deep sea traffic of the world for a matter of five years, the Panama Canal is blasé. Battleships which possess the power to thrill the least emotional of souls pass through it and the pelicans, sitting on the bleached branches of trees rising from the bottom of Ganton Lake, shrug contemptuous shoulders. Twice a month, the tremendous emergency gates at the Ganton Locks are experimentally closed to the wonder and admiration of all visitors who are mechanically minded, but the Hebraic little frogs of the dam pay them no attention. Unperturbed, they croak their guttural oi, 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 a sound that, even more than the songs of the cabaret girls in Cologne, reminds me of little old New York. Ships from Shanghai, Cape Town, Liverpool, pass from ocean to ocean in a day, and the lock engineers, unamazed, repair to the carpenter's shop between the lock chambers and pursue their interrupted craftsmanship of fine native woods. The whole canal zone is so scaled up to the operation of tremendous works that the unusual in point of size, intricacy or ingenuity has become unusual. Conversely, the small ship or the minor undertaking has become interesting. Hence it was that the Star and Gizzard, less affectionately known as the Star and Herald of Panama City, singled out the hippocampus for a column of glowing praise. From this news story, we learned that our 28-foot yawl is the smallest boat ever to pass through the canal on a long cruise. Gratifying as it was to know that our diminutive proportions had established a record in the annals of the canal, we were still more pleased by a special concession that was accorded us by the authorities. Having cruised from New York without once taking a pilot, and having at times navigated difficult places without adequate charts, we entertained an ambition to pass through the most meticulously piloted waterway in the world without a professional hand at Artilla. We disclosed our desire to the port captain at Cologne and learned that it was unusual, untenable and preposterous. No ship, we were told, other than a government vessel had ever passed through the canal without a pilot. No ship was permitted to even move from anchorage to dock without one. It was not that we were incapable of passing through without a pilot. Our wish was just contrary to the rules and regulations governing the canal. Severe as it seems, this ultimatum was couched in friendly phrases, and we took heart. Very well, we replied, in effect. Why not abrogate the rules? What are rules if you can't break them? And we presented a few telling facts and figures. By official measurement, Hippocampus is of six tons gross weight. By official classification, she is a vessel in ballast and is chargeable at 75 cents a ton, or $4.50 for the passage. This sum includes the services of the pilot. The pilot's hire would nick the government $14. Problem. Find the government's percentage of profit. This presentation of statistics won the case for us, and following our assurance that we were able to differentiate between red and black boys, we received permission to proceed at will from Cristobal to Balboa. On the morning of August 19th, we got underway from our anchorage and with E.G. Davidson, a mining engineer, aboard as passenger, swung into the channel leading to the Garten Locks. With us, as we approached the giant stairway, steamed the SS Arapiu, 
bound from England to New Zealand, and her passengers lining the rail watched us with interest as we lowered our brilliant yacht ensign and in its stead hoisted a dingy, time-worn remnant of a United States ensign. They did not know, of course, that this flag, once brave and bright, had spread its stripes in the Adriatic submarine zone and had been brought to Panama to enrich its sentimental value. But from the studied nonchalance of the crew of the hippocampus, they may have guessed that the occasion was of great moment to us. To say the least of it, one doesn't enter a thousand-foot lock in a twenty-eight-foot yawl with a calm, untroubled mind. We knew that the incoming water would surge up under us from sixteen-foot culverts, and we had been told often enough of the damage resulting to small boats. Some had had their rails and rub strakes ripped away, and even navy tugs had been torn from their moorings and whipped about in the lock chambers. As we waited for the Arapia to enter the first lock ahead of us, we felt that crossing the open Caribbean was child's play compared with this adventure. Nevertheless, as I say, we were nonchalant. Under power, we crept up near the stern of the ocean liner and lay to alongside the left wall of the lock chamber. Heaving lines were dropped onto our awning from above, and when we observed their slightness, we politely but firmly asked for heavier stock. The ponderous gates were closing, time pressed, but new lines of three-quarter inch diameter were soon forthcoming. The upper ends were secured to bollards 40 feet above us, and we were advised to take a turn with each around our bits and prepare to haul in slack. It sounded simple in prospect. With the first inrush of water, an influx, by the way, a dozen times more tumultuous than the admission of water to the locks in the New York Barge Canal, we were thrown violently against the wall, and there we stayed, chewing away our rub strake for the first 15 feet of the 30-foot rise. But presently, a violent countercurrent caught our stern, and try as Al and Davidson manning the stern line would, they could not hold us close to the wall. This was an exciting two minutes, but suddenly the current slacked off and we floated up as placidly as a celluloid duck in a bathtub. One third of the agony was over. The next third was the worst, for there is something inexplicable about the middle lock at each end of the canal that plays hob with the currents and with the small craft caught in their rough embrace. Even capital ships have trouble in the second lock, and we have heard of iron chocks and yards of hand railing being hurled high in the air when the electric mules curb the unruly plunges of their charges. This time, as the huge gates closed majestically behind us, we lost some of our nonchalance, and I for one felt somewhat as Poe's character felt when he looked up from his cot and saw the walls of his dungeon drawing together. We had started the motor to convey us to the upper level, but now we shut it off and stood on deck, ready to pull or push. Joe Chambers and Davidson were again at the after line and Joe Squibb at the less troublesome bow line, while I stood by prepared to soften the first crash of the boat against the stone coping. The crash came as the water eddied up and again the splinters flew. For a moment we hugged the wall, Chambers and Davidson taking slack feverishly and then again the current caught our stern and robbed us of the slack. The line hauled taut and we surged forward. There was no heaving against that urge. Instead, as the water rose, the angle of the humming line increased from the perpendicular, and in a moment we were irresistibly thrust stern-first toward the centre of the chamber. 
The turnbuckle of the after-mizzen shroud snapped as the line tended against it. The bit started slightly from the deck. Pay out slowly, I advised. Let the current take us, for I feared that a parted line would throw us under the stern of the Arapiu. And with one turn around the bit, the steaming line snaked slowly through the aching hands of the two men. Now we lay at right angles to the wall, and now as I ran forward to fend us off, we splintered the tip of our bowsprit against the unyielding stone. In another moment, Chambers cast off the stern line, for it was threatening to carry away all our portside rigging, but at that instant, the current slacked off, and we floated gently, starboard side to the wall. Not too gently, however, and of course the dink interposed itself between us and the stone, there came a cry from the quarterdeck of our lockmate, and Al, seeming to anticipate the warning, yanked the tender from harm's way by a margin of inches. We eased the hippo's shock of impact and breathed again. Likewise, we cast off our remaining line, started the motor, turned around in the lock, and followed the arapio into the third and topmost chamber. As we took our mooring lines from the lock tenders on the lake level, we received a word of encouragement. You're through the worst of it, said Walker an official who later showed us through the operating galleries of Gayton, and if you'll haul aft a bit to lie directly abreast the ladder, you'll have no further trouble. We did as we were advised and found when the water was admitted that we had been placed directly above one of the big inlet culverts. The effect was somewhat similar to that of a ball sustained in air on the powerful jet of a fountain, for the current, rising perpendicularly beneath us, divided fore and aft and kept us in slack water. In this lock, I replaced Al at the stern line, for his hands were raw from his experience, but had little to do but take in slack as we ascended. In one hour and nine minutes from the time of entering the lowest lock, we were in the fresh water of Garten Lake, but little the worse for rough usage and with the last major excitement of the crews behind us. The New Zealander was towed from the chamber by her six electric locomotives, and as she cast off her steel cables, we started our motor and dodged the backwash from her propeller, headed blithely for the dock of the canal lighthouse depot. There we were welcomed by Carragher, pilot in charge of lighthouses, and there inspected the motorboat Eunice, which, as I mentioned in the last chapter, figured extensively in the canal passage of the Dreamship. Eunice is chiefly interesting to northern eyes in her deck of solid teak, we are used to this tropical wood in the ornamentation of expensive yachts and consider it bordering on the sacrilegious to employ it for the deck of a workboat. Yet Carriger told me that for five years the hobnailed shoes of deck hands, the heavy weight of gasoline drums and the sharp edges of acetylene bottles have pressed against it and he successfully defied me to find a dent in its surface. If the hippocampus had been provided with a rub strake of teak before passing through the garten locks, she would not now require the services of a carpenter on her port side. That evening, we motored with a party of friends back to Colon for a go at the movies, and that night, for the first time since our departure from Key West, we fought a battle with the mosquitoes. In the terminal cities and elsewhere in the zone at a distance of more than 200 yards from the lake shore line, mosquitoes are virtually non-existent but at the lighthouse dock they are wild and wicked and voracious. Our old friend Citronella ministered to us through the night, but I suspect the garten mosquitoes of drinking from the mouth of the bottle and returned refreshed to the onslaught. Consequently, we were cheerless and heavy-eyed when our friends Arnold and Stevenson descended from the morning train from Cologne and boarded us for the run across the canal. 
It was raining dismally at the time, as Davidson, who had slept on deck under the awning, could well attest, and as we looked out over the broad reach of the lake, we could see nothing. But the tropical clouds were incapable of spreading a wet blanket over the spirits of our new guests. They know the rainy season, and they confidently predicted that with the starting of the motor, the rain would slack off and stay slacked off for the rest of the day. As a matter of fact, it did, and although the day was overcast, we were informed that we could have no more perfect weather for the Isthmian jaunt. The clouds, spreading a canopy under the sun, kept from us the infernal heat that is still remembered with dread by the men who dug Culubre Cut. In itself, our trip across the Isthmus was uninteresting, for the canal is so perfectly buoyed that a blind coal passer could not lose his way. But the proximity of the jungle and the anachronism of ocean-going ships meeting and passing in fresh water served as fuel for conversation. At Darien, where there is a powerful naval radio station, we looked eagerly for the peak upon which our old friend Balboa stood when he sighted the Pacific, a peak immortalised in the lines of Keats. Or like stout Cortez, when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. It's all the poetry I know, and Bartlett had to help me with the first three lines, but I had the satisfaction of declaiming it when, under Steve's expert ciceronage, we found the peak, green, close-cropped by the canal engineers, and seemingly no higher than a dozen hillocks surrounding it. Subsequently, we learned that the peak where Balboa, or, if you take the poet's word for it, Cortez, stood and stared, is situated in another Darien, several counties nearer the equator. But we had the thrill. We had a very good time altogether. Someone cooked up a navy mulligan at the psychological moment, and we partook of its deliciousness as we passed between the still-slipping sides of Calubra Cut, now known on the charts but nowhere else as Galliard Cut. As we came to the locks of Piedra Maguel, invariably called Peter Mike, we licked with our fingers the last vestiges of the chocolate cake which Mrs. Arnold had contributed to cap our meal. So fortified, we were ready for anything, but found instead that peace and hospitality were to attend the last few miles of our southward voyage. At the Peter Mike Locks, we were informed that a welcome and safe mooring awaited us at the anchorage of the Balboa Boathouse, and further on, at Mia Flores, a military-looking individual in the uniform of the Lock Guards, cupped his hands and bellowed, "'Have you got your orders?' Uh, "'What orders, sir?' we asked, habit slipping a mental cog back to sub-chaser days." Your orders to make yourselves at home at the Balboa Boathouse. Having been subconsciously prepared for the command, when gassed and provisioned you may put to sea, our relief was intense and gratitude rendered us inarticulate. A few minutes later, we dropped quietly to sea level and when the last gates opened, found ourselves at last in the waters of the Pacific. There was room at this juncture for reminiscence of the hundreds and thousands of crooked miles that we had put behind us in linking Balboa with New York, but there was no time for reflection. As we swept out with a falling tide, a small boat intercepted us, and we were boarded by a man who we thought and feared as a pilot. If he was a pilot, and the insignia on his cap seemed to proclaim him such, he was spoiling our record in the last two miles of the journey. If he was not a pilot, he was as welcome as flowers in May. Our anxiety was not relieved until after we had anchored at his direction and he had left us to our own devices. Then Red Gibson, the Balboa Jack of all trades, Whaler, Lear, Potter and other yacht club members boarded us and we were informed that, anchored where we were, 
we would go high and dry at low water. So we knew that we had come to the southern point of our voyage without accepting the services of a pilot. Our escutcheon was still clean. Getting underway again, we secured our anchor on deck and made fast to a club mooring, thereby paving the way for our last misadventure. For the next 30 or 40 minutes, there was a mad flourish of clothes below deck, from which emerged the crew of the hippocampus, slightly immaculate in Liberty Whites and with appetites whetted for a meal at the Century Club in Panama City. Leah had extended the invitation to crew and supernumeraries, but of the latter, Stevenson and Arnold had other engagements and only Davidson accepted. Carr, another club member, came alongside in a floating tin Lizzie, which is the admiration and wonder of all inhabitants of the Gold Coast, and we were ferried ashore. Of the dinner at the Century Club, graciously presided over by Leah's pal, his 14-year-old daughter Dora, of the ensuring drive through the cool of the evening along the smooth Pacific highways of the zone, of our next day's visit to the ruins of old Panama City as guests of Davidson, and of other hospitality and diversions, there is room for no more than the merest mention. The arrival of the hippocampus at Balboa had been expected since June, and in August we were made to understand that our welcome had been elastically extended. With the focus of our interest directed ashore, poor little hippocampus suffered a severe dislocation. Neglect put her nose out of joint, and when, on the day after our arrival, the evening tide swept seaward in its 16-foot fall, she determined to create a diversion on her own account. Deftly, quietly, but with a grieving heart, she dragged her club mooring to a high spot on the middle ground which parallels the waterfront, and there immolated herself on a sandy altar. At midnight, when we left the shore in the club tender, caroling softly as voyagers are wont to do in the small hours, Al Chambers' keen eyes were suddenly attracted by the silhouette of tilted spars against the skyline. Hello, he said. Some poor dub is high and dry. A tightening of the throat strangled my feeble efforts to sing the bass of Merrily We Roll Along, and I whispered, A thousand dollars, which I haven't, to one, which I hope to have, that I'm the dub. Sure enough, I was. As we drew nearer, we saw the hippo lying over on her side in the pathetic attitude of one who, having struggled to do her best, was wearied of well-doing. Around her there was enough water to float the club tender, and from it I stepped to the diagonal plane of Hippocampus's deck. Below there was much confusion. Clothes, camera, typewriter and cushions lay in a conglomerate heap on the cabin deck, a heap surmounted by my precious sextant. On 999 other occasions, I had wedged the sexton in its rack secure against the hippo's most erratic gyrations. On the thousandth, I had neglected it. Even the chronometer, my most cherished instrument, hung precariously, fixed by two threads of one screw, for I had been in the act of dismounting it for packing when interrupted by some other duty. But the good luck which has attended all our mishaps, saved our possessions from major injury, and I derived much consolation from the fact that we were heeled over to port where my spare clothes were not. Chambers, whose neglected turn it had been to pump the bilge, also came out unscathed, but poor Squibb's locker received the bilge water. Seeing that we could neither sleep nor mend matters until the tide had again risen, we returned with blankets to the yacht club and turned in on the porch deck. At three o'clock I was again aboard to watch Hippo come to an even keel and to learn that she had done herself no harm in her adventure. The others joined me and we slept until mid-morning when we cast off our mooring and anchored in deep water. So the cruise of the Hippocampus ended as it had begun 
and as it had continued for four months, a chapter of hairbreadth escapes from amusing or frightening misfortune. On a dozen occasions, if we had been a little more favoured by fate, there would have been no story to write, and contra, if we had been less favoured, there would have been no one left to write the story. Success has crowned our efforts. In the delightful closing hours of the cruise, we wished fervently that we might go on without cessation, cruising perhaps to the South Seas before all the world has been there. But the necessity for earning an honest living has drawn me to New York, so after only three days in Balboa, we headed north again, bound for Garton Lake, and the business of putting Hippocampus out of commission for the winter months. A week passed in unshipping spars and sails, in drying cushions in the fitful periods of sunshine which break through the August rain clouds, in painting deck and cabin, and in placing equipment in dry storage. Then, when the Hippocampus was stripped of everything portable, her energetic little motor snorted for the last time and chugged her to a mooring off the lighthouse depot. There she rests, saucy and trim as when she first took the water, awaiting my return. While 3,000 miles of her native elements separate her from me, she is brought constantly to the foreground of my mind by the written assurances of my Canal Zone friends that Hippo is okay. So also are the resourceful, energetic and companionable shipmates who help me sail her to the zone. Both Squib and Chambers, responding to the lure of tropical life, have turned their backs on the winds and vicissitudes of northern existence. Squib, again a landsman but with the firmly established reputation of a sea dog, is surveying for an oil company in the Colombian jungle. Chambers, always the rover and the adventurer, has cast his lot with our engineering friend Davidson and at last accounts was heading for the upwaters of a great South American river, there to search for gold and diamonds. Hippocampus owes them much, but when I last saw her pirouetting at her mooring, she wore the righteous air of one who gives as good as she receives. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.